0: Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in future fuels. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is Corny Huizinga, and today we're going to talk about uh, low-carbon transport. Corny uh, is the Secretary General of the... Slowcat, uh, the Slowcat Partnership and has been leading the development of the planning of the Slowcat Foundation. Corny played a role in the development of the voluntary commitments on sustainable transport at the Rio Plus 20 Conference, including the unprecedented USD $175 billion for more sustainable transport by the world's eight largest multilateral development banks, which really, really is incredible. Corny, I'd like to welcome you to the show, and I do want to apologize to you for mangling your last name. It's great to have you with us today. So, for those listeners who may not be familiar, can can you talk about Slowcat, how it was formed, what its key mission is, and what your primary objectives are for the organization over the next few years?
1: Thank you, Tammy, and thanks for, for having me on the show. When we talk about Slowcat, the Partnership on Sustainable Low-Carbon Transport, uh, we need to go back about almost nine years to 2009, which is actually eight years back, but uh, At that point in time, there were a number of organizations who were working on sustainable transport, either at the city level or, in some cases, at the the country level. And they, they came together and they said, like, it is strange that there is no global voice uh, on, on sustainable transport. This became especially apparent at the, the climate change meetings. We saw uh, towards the end of the last decennium that uh, that countries were starting to pay more attention to climate change, and we started to see uh, the desire to come up with a new global agreement on, on, on climate change. So it was at a meeting in uh, in Bali in uh, in 2007 that a number of organizations said that there were very few discussions there about transport. And they said that this is strange because transport is responsible for about a quarter of the energy related emissions uh, in terms of climate change. But but there were no real discussions, there were no events on, on transport. And that's where a discussion started uh, amongst a number of organizations working on sustainable transport. This discussion was picked up by the Asian Development Bank, which is one of the main international organizations funding uh, transport projects in developing countries. Through that, we decided to, to come up with uh, an initiative where organizations would start to work together, so initially this was very low key, uh, and I was involved in it uh, on a part time basis and gradually over the over the years uh, then the message started to 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 resound with uh, at, at the global policy level. And more organizations joined. Currently, Slocut has about uh, 90 different members. We we said that we started to see to get some impact. And I think that you mentioned in the example of the Rio Plus 20 conference, which took place in, uh, in Brazil in 2012, where we were able to put sustainable transport on the map through this uh, commitment. Uh, of eight of our um, members, uh, the, the, the multilateral development banks. And slowly, we also started to get an impact in, in the climate change arena as well. That resulted in 2014 that our members said that th- this is an important uh, development and this is something that we want to continue supporting. And that led to the, to the establishment of the Slow Cut Foundation. So, the SLOCAD Foundation was established to support the work of the partnership, and the partnership has a very simple uh, mandate, like, how can we promote the integration of sustainable transport in global policies on sustainable development and climate change? And the exciting uh, thing that has happened over the last two years is that we have seen a number of new international agreements, and that includes... Uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, which were enacted in 2015. And the Sustainable Development Goals is, is a set of global goals with which guide the governments of the world in terms of their development policies, it, it goes back to the Millennium Development Goals, which were uh, adopted in uh, in the year 2000, when the global community said at the turn of the millennium that that it is a disgrace that still so many people live in poverty, that that so many so many children are dying. So, so they came up then with something which was called the Millennium Development Goals, which was quite effective in driving uh, international development policy. And then uh, when these uh, Millennium Development Goals came to an end in 2015, uh, a new set of goals was enacted, the Sustainable Development Goals. And here we were able to, to actually integrate transport in several of the goals in addition to that we also had the, the paris agreement on climate change which was a breakthrough agreement uh, in terms of the level of ambition to keep global temperatures well below 2 degrees we've had other uh, international agreements on uh, on road safety and on urban development as well as on trade and development so over the last 2 years we have seen uh, seven international agreements all of which uh, make a specific reference to transport or where transport the, where the transport sector would be uh, required to, to make a contribution to make these agreements a success so so I think that that 's in a nutshell. Where slow cut came from, so currently we are in a, in a situation that we have at the global level that we are starting to see an awareness uh, that that we need to change the development model that we need to change also the way that we deal with the climate, and we are in a situation that transport is now part of the of the solutions so the emphasis that slow cuts will have in the next couple of years is that we say like how do we move from advocating uh, the importance of sustainable transport to advocating the implementation of sustainable transport. And that will be uh, the challenge that will keep us busy for the next couple of years. Hmm?
0: So, one of the agreements or one of the initiatives that I know that you have been very involved in is is Habitat 3. Can you talk a little bit about um, Habitat 3 and its outcomes and what it actually means for for low carbon transport. And then in that context, you know, what does it mean for the auto and oil industries? Because I think the perception, at least in in some quarters of the auto and oil industry, is that the activities and uh, the mission and objectives that you just discussed from, um, you know, that for, for Slowcat are kind of, you know, sort of separate and removed from, you know, what's happening, um, in the auto and oil industry. But, you know, the way that I see it is, is really nothing could be, could be further from the truth. The things that you're, you're doing in Slowcat have really do have repercussions for that, for that industry. So can you talk about those, um, dynamics and especially in, in the context of, of Habitat 3?
1: I think that uh, I will say something about habitat 3 first and then come back to uh, to the to the issue of the auto industry like habitat 3 is uh, is in other global uh, process or a global conference. Uh, the nice thing is that this is a conference which only takes place every 20 years. And the purpose of the Habitat uh, Conference is to to guide urban development. This started in 1976 uh, in, uh, in in Vancouver when the governments of the world came together and said that we need to Provide some kind of direction for the, the, the growing urbanisation in the world. Um, initially, it started off as a conference which had a very, with a relatively narrow focus on uh, on 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 housing and on slums. Um, uh, Twenty years later, the conference uh, took place in Istanbul uh, and. We already saw that the agenda started to widen uh, a bit more. And uh, last year, when the conference was in in Quito, it it was really like a full scaled urban development conference uh, where all aspects of urban development uh, where, where were tackled in in, in considerable uh, detail. From the side of of Slowcards, we were very pleased that we were able to, to get, uh, substantive references to sustainable transport in the outcome document of the Habitat 3 conference, the new urban agenda. And in fact, this, this for us was an agreement uh, in a way you could say almost like a, like a, like a model. Uh, transport is, is the sector which, which is uh, mentioned most often. We saw that there was a wide range of policy recommendations divided over nine different areas, ranging from land use planning to, to, to road safety to, to air quality to congestion, uh, etc., which which were all included in the outcome document. So for us... This, this really sets the stage that if we talk about further urban development over the next 20 years, that, uh, that, that we can somehow expect that transport and sustainable transport will be an important part of the solution in the future. This is important because if we look at it, uh, at the moment... Uh, about half of the world's uh, population lives in cities. Huh? At the same time, we know that the urban population is going to increase, and we know that over the next uh, 35 years, up to 2050, we expect that there will be another 2.5 billion people living in cities. So, so this is key. Like... These are 2, 2.5 billion people for whom transport needs to create uh, needs to be created. So, so the question is really, what kind of transport systems are we going to create for these uh, for, the, for for these new urban dwellers? Huh? And this is, I think, also where you can make a link to the to to the auto industry. It's clear that I mentioned at the beginning that transport is responsible for 25 percent of energy-related greenhouse gases, and it's clear that if we do not take any action, that that this percentage uh, and that the amount of emissions will continue to grow. At the same time we know that if we would want to implement the, the Paris Agreement on climate change, that pretty much by 2050 that transport would have to be decarbonized. So and this the, the fact that we are talking about moving towards zero also I think provides the answer to your question on the on the auto industry. In the past, when we had relatively more mild targets in terms of greenhouse gas emission reduction, you could have a discussion on should it be the the, the energy sector or the housing sector or the transport sector which has to generate the reductions. But knowing that we need to pretty much decarbonize the entire economy the time of picking winners is gone. Like, pretty much every sector has to contribute. And that also means that within the sectors that in the past you could say, okay, like we're going to promote sustain uh, public transport or we're promoting walking or cycling or we do another uh, solution. But also within the transport sector, it is clear that pretty much every subsector of the transport sector will have to contribute and that also means that the auto industry is going to change uh, radically and this this is uh, and we start to see a lot of the let's say the writing is on the wall uh, if you read the papers and and you you pay attention to this you will see that for example germany Uh, adopted a Climate Action Plan last year in which they indicated that that transport emissions would have to reduce by about 70% by 2014. In Sweden, there is a proposal uh, for for Parliament which also talks about uh, reductions of carbon emissions from transport, 70%, by 2030. We see that various kinds of cities are currently already talking about becoming carbon-neutral like last week, I was reading about Reykjavik as an example. In the United States, we see that, uh, that there, are, uh, there is legislation under discussion in Massachusetts, uh, in, in Hawaii, to move to a 100% renewable energy uh, economy, which also will have implications for, for, the, for the transport sector. So in many respects, uh, the change is already happening. Electric mobility is is very rapidly uh, being scaled up. And we've seen that we've just broken the, the 2 million uh, mark for, for electric vehicles. If you ask the experts and say like that, you say like how long will it be before we have the next 2 million? People say probably in a year to 18 months. I was reading about China. Uh, China currently... Uh, last year, uh, 115,000 electric buses were, were being put on the road. Huh? Uh, so we saw that uh, that in terms of freight, that Mercedes-Benz uh, just uh, this week announced uh, that they are piloting an e-truck. Uh, so in all kinds of respects, we see that the, the vehicle industry it's clear that they, that they are aware that, that they can no longer produce the same vehicles as that they were producing in the past. So I would fully agree with you that, uh, that this is really uh, the idea of saying that you can separate the discussion of the, the, the vehicle industry from the discussion on, uh, on, on transport and climate change. I think that uh, if people would say that that is possible, they are not well informed and they are not well advised. and
0: so I want to ask you a, a follow-up question, especially when you talk about um, urbanization. I mean, according to you and Dessa, I mean, we're looking at, at 70% of the human population living in urban areas by 2050. And um, I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but we know that car ownership is, um, you know, is increasing. I mean, it's, I think... I think the statistic is 135% and a lot of that is going to be coming, um, out of, um, out of Asia and to a lesser extent, uh, Latin America and, um, and Africa. But my question to you is given what you just said is, is, I mean, I don't see how personal mobility when we're talking about this sort of large percentage, I don't know how personal mobility, even with electric vehicles and cleaner fuels and tighter fuel economy standards and, you know, all of these things, um, you know, that are, are worthy. I don't see how personal mobility continues. So my question to you is, is personal mobility, at least in the megacities, so the, the cities with 10 million or more inhabitants, is that just going to be over? Uh, in time, I mean, will personal mobility just become so completely unsustainable, um, that, you know, cities just aren't going to be able to, to take cars and thus this issue of car bans, which we're already beginning to see, um, in some cities around the world. I mean, from, from, from Delhi, either restrictions or outright car bans, you know, London, Paris, Madrid, New Delhi. Um, do you see that, that trend continuing because cities just can't handle the cars anymore?
1: Let me give an example. Like uh, I'm talking to you from Shanghai, and I've been living in Shanghai for the last 10 years. So Shanghai is a city which in 1998 decided already that uh, that there would not be a uh, place for, for cars for, for the entire population. So what they did in uh, 1998 is that they imposed uh, a quota for, for new vehicles. So each year... Uh, Shanghai currently has a population of 24 million people. Each year, we are only allowed to to put 110,000 new vehicles on the road. In order to uh, to, to get a car, you first have to bid uh, in an auction for the license, uh, and then you get you get a permit that that you can own a car for 10 years. Uh. This permit will set you back about $10,000. Uh. So so that means that the city has, uh, on the one hand, an income of over a billion dollars in terms of revenue from the auction. And on the other hand, they, they have far fewer cars than than other uh, comparable cities. At huh? the same time, uh, over the last 10 years here in, in Shanghai, uh, we have gone from a subway system where we uh, when I moved here, there were four metro lines Currently, there are about 14 metro lines. Um, uh, Shanghai, together with Beijing, is uh, is the largest in terms of the number of passengers uh, per day. We have about 8 million uh, passengers on the on the subway uh, each day here in, in Shanghai. And over the last over the last 12 months. Hmm, Bicycles have suddenly become popular again. Uh, you've probably heard about uh, the, the systems in uh, in Paris, uh, Philippe, and etc. So in in Shanghai, uh, they have uh, that we do things all, always at scale. So uh, I think that Paris has something like forty or fifty thousand bicycles in their scheme. Uh, by the end of this year, Shanghai will have five hundred thousand uh, bikes in its bike share. So so these are examples that that it is clear that at least here in china and shanghai is not unrepresentative for 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 other cities here in china that that we see that uh, that there is on the one hand uh, a clear awareness that uh, that that you need to control the uh, the number of uh, of private vehicles but but at, at the same time that that you need to provide alternatives huh? and so so the, the alternatives uh, through subway i mentioned the the 115000 electric buses uh which uh, which uh, come on the road here in china on on a yearly basis then then we have the bike share and at the same time uh, Chinese road engineers realize that if you build a road, that you also need to, buy, uh, need to build a sidewalk. So, so, so based on that, I do think there's a very clear example that changes are possible. It's interesting that on the one hand that a country like China is leading, but we also see that, like in the developed world, and that for example, like just recently, uh, I think that there were four cities: uh, Mexico City, Paris, uh, London, and another city uh, with which we, and Madrid, which which decided to ban diesel vehicles because they say diesel vehicles uh, are particularly uh, polluting in terms of air pollution. So, so, so there we see that uh, that cities are starting to take action. And generally, I think that people realize that cities are a much, uh, much nicer place to live in, uh, that if, uh, if, uh, if cars take, take a, second, uh, a second seat or a second place and that they are not uh, at the forefront of everything. So apart from climate, apart from air pollution, and apart from all kinds of other issues, uh, I think that cities have become much more livable. If if you put the people at the center uh, instead of the cars, and and we are very happy in Slow cut that, uh, that that we see that that message is is resonating uh, in many different parts of the world. Huh?
0: So you do see um, you know along with the, the the solutions that you you just talked about and the model of, of of Shanghai, you do in Paris and so forth. You but you you do see other cities. Coming to grips some way, somehow with the sheer number of vehicles, um, in their, in, in their cities that they will have to take some kinds of actions. What those will be, if they'll be, you know, bans or bans of certain type of vehicles, like you talk about with diesel, um, or something else, they will have to get to grips, uh, somehow, some way with the number of personal Personal, At least personal transport vehicle. I mean, commercial vehicles are another, another issue um, entirely. I mean, actually, it's quite a, quite a bit of, of polluting <laughs> uh, commercial vehicles out there. But with respect to personal transport, you do see cities uh, coming to grips with that in, in the future, or continuing to come to grips with what, what to do about those vehicles in the future.
1: I, th- I think, yeah, like, it's, uh, like I used to be a smoker in the, in the past, 25 years ago, and people would tell me that, that smoking was bad, so I tried to stop a few times uh, and it took me a few times before I really stopped. At the same time, you can you see that some people continue to smoke. And so you could say like some cities are still smoking as well, that uh, there are some cities who feel that they can build their way out of congestion and that here in China, we have, we had a very interesting uh, comparison between Shanghai and Beijing. Uh, I mentioned that Shanghai put a vehicle quota in place in 1998. Beijing as the capital uh, thought that they could build their way out of congestion. So we currently have six ring roads uh, around China, uh, Beijing in order to uh, to to provide place for 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 for, uh, for for the cars. That didn't work. Then they decided to to subsidize public transport. That didn't work. And then they decided to come up with an odd even scheme that people could only use their cars on certain days. That didn't work. And it was finally uh, three or four years ago that. That Beijing said, "Look, uh, it's not possible to deal with this number of cars," and so that they also decided to adopt the the, the Shanghai model uh, with with the vehicle quota. It is clear that vehicle quotas that you need a certain political uh, context for that to work. Like uh, if we look, for example, like at Indian cities, it is clear that uh, that congestion is a very serious problem. Air pollution nowadays is is more severe in uh, in Indian cities than in uh, than in Chinese cities, eh? and we see that uh, that on the one hand we see that there are large investments in uh, in public transport in uh, in Indian cities, eh? but at the same time uh, there is still also a more or less unrestrained growth of private mobility. So 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 the problem is still getting worse, eh? and that that is something where i think that uh, that that those cities and the people living in the cities and the people making the decisions there at some point will have to come to to terms with the, with uh, with the point that it is not feasible to to have unrestrained private motorization and it's very interesting like if you go online and if you google bill Ford and cities and and cars that you will hear that uh, let's say that 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 Bill Ford, let's say you, you could say, is, an, uh, is a representative of, of private motorization, That that even people in the auto industry are saying, look, uh, we cannot continue to sell cars uh, in, in in cities because uh, there, there is a limit to to what cities can absorb.
0: You know, I think the tendency on the part of some, you know, maybe maybe here in the U.S. is, you know, to to characterise this as well, this is a meg- megacity problem, or this is an Asia problem, um, or this is a development problem. But, you know, it really isn't. The more I, um, you know, research and, and look at this, because I really believe that cities, um, um, as opposed to pr- state, provincial, and and federal or national governments, I really believe that cities are going to be the key to um to the future of uh transport, you know, fuel fuels, energy and and transport. Um that's that's really the the first thing. It'd be interesting to hear your comment on that. But, you know, even in a city like, you know, um you know Miami Dade County, which is in um South Florida, I live in Florida, um, you know, and they've basically done Exactly what you've talked about is they've tried to develop around, you know, to, to continue, you know, they have continued to allow, you know, vehicles and things like that, of course, and they've tried to sort of develop their way out of it. And what's happening is, you know, more and more cars, the city is, is growing, you know, I think, um, with, I don't know what the ranking is, but in, in, in terms of UN figures, but it's definitely in the top, uh, you know, 100 cities. It's got multi-million people. It will probably be a mega city, you know, sometime in the near future, you know, and what's happening is, um, you know, they've done bike paths. They have public transport. They don't have subways. You know, they've done things to sort of promote, um, getting out of the cars. And basically what the, the city officials have basically said, had, had literally said to uh, in the media is, we're just gonna let people suffer. We are going to let people suffer until they figure out that they need to get out of their cars. And I really did a double take on that um, because you know it's it's um, you know refreshingly frank. <laughs> um, I mean, they basically said we're gonna let people suffer because we don't know what else to do. Um, so it's not an issue that is just, you know, oh, this is an L.A. problem and, you know, California Air Resources Board is handling that or, you know, this is a China-India problem. This is a, you know, a a global problem that even touches um, the West and not even the largest cities in the West. So I wonder if you have any comment about that and also about this concept of the cities as really, you know, taking the lead. I mean, I think, they will take the lead in terms of implementing um, transport provisions of, of um, you know, the Paris Agreement, for example, or the provisions of the new habitat agenda, for example. So I wonder what you think about that.
1: I think you need to briefly go back to to the economic significance of cities. Like in, in many places, uh, cities provide between 60 to 80 percent of GDP. And so... City managers uh, or city officials—they uh, are not dumb. They—they they realize that in order to to stay economically competitive, the city needs to move, hmm? and that—and I think that the example that you gave. Uh, say of the place where, where you live that people say like it needs to get worse before it can get better. I think that this is something that uh, that in many cases that, that the decision makers, that they are aware of the problem but, but ultimately you need to get the, 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 the public on your side because one of the challenges uh, for example like in the us is, um, is that if you want to improve transit that in many cases that people need to vote for uh, for an increase in taxes um, in order to to pay for it um, and and that is th- that is often the challenge um, so to some extent we are putting our faith also in the younger generation because it, there is also uh, since since we were talking about the car like I think you need to look at a car as a cultural phenomena as well. Like, it's, uh, If you look at the way that, uh, that, that my generation looks at a car and deals with a car and the way that a younger generation is dealing with, with, with cars, is, is radically different. Uh, I don't know the numbers for, for the U.S., but uh, if you look at Europe, that in many European cities, that if you look at the, the age bracket uh, between 18 and 25, the number of people who have a driver's license is, is decreasing with with something like 30% or 40% compared to, to a generation before so so that new generation has a different expectation in terms of uh, how to deal with their mobility needs and their mobility solutions and i think that that is also something that we need to keep in mind at the moment uh, it's the it's the baby boom generation which drives uh, most miles also in the US huh? Like the U.S., like I, I saw the statistic, uh, I think two weeks ago, that uh, that for the first time in a number of years, that the the amount of uh, of kilometers driven is actually going up again. So 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 it is clear that uh, even though that we we can all be very let's say rational about it, and then we say, look, these are the solutions, these are the trends, this is the way that it that it needs to go. That the challenge is that, that somehow. The the message does not fully uh, is not it does not fully get there it does not get through so so that that is also I think one of the big challenges and that's just to to look back to what I said at the beginning that uh, so slow cut we were established to uh, let's say to to advocate for sustainable transport in global policies, we see that the global policies are making reference to to sustainable transport and it's like the like your city manager who is aware of it, but how do you get it implemented so and one of the things that 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 we are increasingly looking at is financing that uh, how do you come up with financing structures uh, that would allow the public sector, to uh, to, to actually uh, develop sustainable transport solutions at scale. We know that in most cases, and I would say that's probably in in the United States as well, is that we cannot expect that the public sector will have the financial resources to to implement sustainable transport at scale at a rate which which is needed uh, in order to decarbonize the transport sector by, by 2050. So so that means that we need to come up with new financing approaches that that incentivizes the private sector and institutional investors to come on board in in, in funding uh, sustainable uh, urban transport systems. And that that involves that you need to look at the financing structures that you need to look at. You need to look at uh, how risk is being allocated over different parties. And you need to look at how does a society provide its incentives? That, uh, so are we, uh, are we subsidizing private uh, driving, but are we not subsidizing uh, public transport? So, so, so these are questions that, that are coming up then. And this is, again, where it is important to, to have the support of the community at large. And as you rightfully said, the community at large will not vote for an increase in, in taxes uh, to to fund new transit uh, if if there are no traffic jams because then it's not in their interest so so in that sense somehow we we do need to have uh, congestion is actually uh, a positive sign on on the way to recovery
0: that's sort of an interesting an interesting take on it you know with respect to financing structures have you seen anything in your experience, either for f- cities or or you know public-private partnerships, that have actually worked? That could be um, you know such a model um, for for financing. Have you seen anything that's really worked, or is this a, a rather new thing?
1: I think it is still relatively new, but but I think at the same time there are uh, there are. Uh, considerable number of of uh, of, uh, of examples that that show that it can work, and in many cases uh, the, these uh, these examples uh, focus around. The, the concept of, of transit-oriented uh, development. And so what we are seeing is that Hong Kong is, is a very nice example, that the the, the Hong Kong subway is profitable, uh, but the Hong Kong subway is not profitable because uh, uh, that they make a profit on, on running the trains. They are profitable because that the, the Hong Kong government uh, allows them uh, to develop land, if they develop uh, new new subway lines as well, so so in many cases you could say that the subway company in Hong Kong is is like uh, is as much a real estate development company as it is a a, a transit uh, uh, operator. And this is something that we are starting to see in other countries uh, as uh, as well. Here in China, uh, I mentioned that that, uh, the the subway here in Shanghai has been uh, growing very fast. And a number of cases that these new subway lines are also operated on a PPP basis and that land uh, development uh, rights are are included in, in the deal as well. So, so, so that's one of the examples where you can say that uh, that that there is a possibility to to bring the, the the private sector on board. In many cases, like if you talk about institutional investors, institutional investors uh, rightfully are very concerned about risk because, like, if your pension fund is going to invest in something you really want to be certain that, uh, that they are able to, to recoup their investment uh, so, so that they are not endangering pensions. So, so that means that if we build a sustainable transport system somewhere in a in, in, in city, uh, the risk is that, that the demand is not as large uh, as we had anticipated when we designed the system. So, so the question is, is not that uh, that the entire uh, investment uh, is, is flawed or at risk, but uh, the question is that you might need some bridging finance to to, to bridge the, the the gap between. Uh, the, the time that the system opens, and that the the, the projected uh, demand and the projected uh, number of of riders on the subway system uh, materializes, um, so and this is also something that where the public sector or other, uh, other types of funding can actually take away the risk for the, for, the, for the private sector, so so that you could say that this is not a way that uh, that that the private sector could get involved. These are some of the examples. At the same time, uh, I think that it is clear that we need far more examples and we also need to make certain that the examples that we have and that the approaches that we have, that these are being rolled out at a much larger scale, because at the moment, it is still piecemeal, it's still on a one-by-one basis, and literally, we need to do that, uh, let's say, in every country, we need to do that, we need to have, uh, let's say, such deals uh, every week, every month, in, in, in every country, in order to get the the impact that, that we need, huh?
0: So I wanted to make a comment about uh, something you said about the generational dimensions of transport. I was recently talking to uh, someone at USC and they're doing research on this, on this very uh, topic. Um, and one of the things that um, they told me is that the as opposed to the baby boomer generation and Generation X, which you know is 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 um, my generation, and there aren't that many of us um, out there as compared to the baby boomers and the millennials. But the interesting thing about m- millennials, and um, it's not just U.S. millennials, but 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 global millennials, is they don't view assets um, in the way that um, Gen X or baby boomers do. In other words. They don't look to ownership, um, and and this isn't across the board, of course, but but generally they don't look to ownership um, the way that people in our generation would. So they, you know, they don't look at owning an asset such as a car or even a house, actually, for that matter. They just don't view that as um, as very important, and I think that's. Going to be interesting, um, just as you say. I mean, I think that's going to find its way into, or, or already has found its way into transport. And it will be those, that generation and the one that follows that, you know, they're the ones that are pushing, you know, Uber and Lyft and ride pooling and, you know, and all, and, and, not, you know, not caring or not needing to own, own a car because they just don't view asset ownership as, a priority in their life it's it's really interesting to think about that that kind of dimension and and um, what that will mean for um, transport um, in the future I don't know if you have any any comment on that
1: yeah I think that uh, it's it's uh, I mentioned uh, the, the example of Shanghai. Like in Shanghai, uh, as you know, that Uber uh, tried to, to to get market share in China, but uh, they they were not able to beat the, the the local competition. So the local competition goes under the name Didi, and what we had here in Shanghai was that uh, that many uh, of the existing taxis in in Shanghai would would become part of this and so instead of hailing a cab on on the street that that you would say that you would have an app on your phone and that you could uh, you could order the taxi like that so then what happened was that, that the taxi said that there's a lot of a lot of demand for it so why don't we uh, ask for a markup and so so you you more or less almost uh, Uh, At 8 o'clock in the morning, you would end up in a bidding war that if you would say, if I add 5 yuan on top of the price, I don't get a taxi, but if I add 10 RMB, I do get a taxi. So... And this is something where the Chinese government or the city government said, so they they, they decided to ban this because they said that, uh, let's say from an equity perspective, that this is not a uh, welcome development. And I think that that is something that uh, you see this like also in other places where... At some point, city governments uh, have said that instead of building a public transit, that we actually issue vouchers or we issue uh, incentives, so so that people can use uh, rideshare uh, applications. And this is something where I think that uh, it becomes. Uh, let's say, an undesirable situation. That I think that we need to be careful that we say that uh, shared mobility is, is, is I think is a reality. Shared mobility will continue to grow and we see shared mobility in the form of bicycles is, is working very well. We see that in some cities that shared mobility is working with, with, with let's say, with, with, with cars like in, in Paris. They are experimenting with this, but uh, in terms of this idea, like the Ubers of this world, so to the extent to which that this will address the, let's say, the problems of congestion uh, in in cities, that uh, I am somewhat uh, I'm somewhat doubtful. So, so I think that uh, we should not put too much, uh, let's say, faith in that. Huh?
0: So I want to ask you um two more questions before we we end. And one is um related to the INDCs um under the Paris Agreement. So I know that Slowcat did a an analysis of the types of measures that uh countries uh, were intending and um it seemed from my review of um of that work that you guys did in in 2015 that aside from the public transport aspects or provisions that that countries were planning it seemed to me that countries were looking at several main areas affecting per, uh, private transport one strengthening fuel economy standards or putting them into place for the first time two either putting into place or continuing a biofuels program um, and three for a handful of countries putting into place zero emission vehicle requirements similar to what we see um, in California or, or um, you know, incentive programs like China, Norway, so on and so forth. So from your perspective, are these worthy endeavors and beneficial and Secondly, are these plans, you know, there's that gap, and and you talked about it at the beginning of the interview, there's that gap between the aspiration and the implementation. Do you think that countries, not just with respect to transport, but with respect to their Paris Agreement commitments, do you think they'll be able to close that gap between the aspiration and, and the implementation?
1: what what you need to understand is that the, the paris agreement talks about a long term or medium term process of decarbonizing the economy and we are talking about a time frame of uh, mid century uh, and then, uh, uh, to to some extent the, the second half of the century, that the instruments, the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions, uh, is, is a rolling mechanism. So countries in 2015, we should not forget that countries were asked to formulate their NDCs before the Paris Agreement uh, actually uh, had been agreed upon. And the Paris Agreement was a surprise in terms of of the level of ambition that countries actually uh, were willing to go along with. So we see this as almost inevitable that the first generation of the NDCs that they lack in ambition. That's, uh, because if you look at it, uh, we need to uh, end up with, with temperature uh, increase well below 2 degrees, preferably 1.5. And if you look at the, the aggregate uh, NDCs, which were uh, submitted in uh, 2015, we, we have a temperature increase of 2.7 degrees. So, so it's clear that there is a gap there. At the same time, This was uh, anticipated or acknowledged in the Paris Agreement because uh, they said, look, we know that the plans are not sufficient. And so this is why... In three years after the Paris Agreement, which will be next year in 2018, uh, they have come up with something which they call the facilitative dialogue, which is intended to, to have a discussion amongst all stakeholders and say, like, how can we scale up ambition? And on the basis of that, uh, countries will develop the next, uh, the second generation of NDCs, which need to be in place by 2020, and the expectation is that by then that we see that countries have done a, a certain amount of homework. We see that, uh, for example, like certain types of technologies, for example, uh, like electric mobility, solar energy, wind energy have, uh, have matured further. So, so, so in that sense, we, we expect that, uh, that the ambition level will be ramped up. At the same time, Countries at the moment also have been asked to come up with long-term strategies, which would be strategies up to 2030, 2050. And there we start to see that countries are putting milestones in in place, and you mentioned Norway, Germany, Sweden. So, so we see an increasing number of countries at the moment still mostly in Europe, but partly we see it at the subnational level, uh, like the, the examples that I mentioned, Massachusetts, Hawaii, etc.—where where there are very ambitious thinking uh, is being displayed in terms of, let's say, renewable energy, get rid of fossil fuel uh, power. And so, so, so in that sense, uh, I think that the, the Paris Agreement was, uh, was, was the beginning of, of, of a process, I would not say that that, that the paris agreement uh, that 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 was on the one hand it was an endpoint of of a certain political process, but at the same time it's also a starting point that that we now need to get down to, and that we are getting down to business and, and coming up with with an increasingly set of more ambitious policies and what we see is that in the past, uh, climate change was an environmental agenda, and increasingly, what we are starting to see that is that climate change is no longer an environmental agenda, but it's becoming an economic agenda, mm-hmm. and that uh, I think that the energy sector, uh, which is you could say in some respects uh, something that we look at as a sector, as an example, that uh, that in several countries. Uh, that renewable energy is competing at price with uh, fossil fuel uh, power. And this is also something that people are starting to talk about now in the transport sector. Initially, like the discussion now is about diesel vehicles and electric vehicles. The expectation is that a tipping point will be in 2020, that, uh, that, a, uh, that, a, uh, that an electric vehicle will be cheaper uh, in terms of purchasing than a diesel vehicle without any uh, subsidies or incentives. Uh? So once we reach that situation, then at a certain point there is no reason for a, uh, for a company like Ford or Volkswagen to, to, to actually produce diesel vehicles because uh, there will be relatively limited the demand for that then. So, so in there we see that, and that economics is, is actually starting to take over. And that is... And that's the process that we somehow need to, need to facilitate and that we need to accelerate. And that's those discussions, on the one hand, uh, it is about uh, electric uh, vehicles uh, and possibly, uh, let's say a number of years down the, down the road, hydrogen uh, and fuel cell vehicles. But, but at the same time, uh, climate change. The climate change agenda is not taking place in a vacuum. You mentioned congestion uh, repeatedly. Uh, air pollution is an issue. So, so there is a whole range of other uh, criteria that that we need to take into consideration if we talk about the future of our transport systems. So bringing it back to the cities that that you talked about. So, so what I would say is is really it's about livable cities. It's about prosperous, livable cities uh, with which. Where it's, where it's pleasant to live in and where it's easy to do business and where it is efficient to do business. And the let's say cities with a high amount of private motorization, with a high amount of congestion, with a high amount of air pollution, etc., are not these types of cities. And I think that that awareness, together with the, with the, with the growing awareness on climate change, is working and that these two forces support each other in terms of making the cities more livable, and, and to, to facilitate and scale up the, the deployment of sustainable transport in cities,
0: I do agree with you. Those twin, those um, you know, those twin uh, drivers. Um, you know, and I talk about this a lot on the site um, of, of air pollution and climate change. Um, you know, I think that's what's really you know, along with other other factors. But those are two huge, huge drivers that are propelling, you know, everything that we're seeing today from from clean fuels to the fuel economy standards uh, to some extent biofuels, zero emission vehicles, um, you know, that there are those ways to allow, you know, to achieve reductions on both sides or improvement on both sides. And still allow for some degree of, um, you know, of, of private mobility. I mean, that's, that's really, I think w- what it's, what it's about. Any last thought before we close on what could happen? Because it seems to me there, there's a lot of momentum this time around. Not every climate negotiation has been, um, you know, very, um, fruitful, um, shall, shall we say, and as as you well know, if the U.S. Uh, pulls out of the Paris Agreement somehow, some way, um, my thinking is that many countries, especially led this time by China, will just move forward and continue. Um, is that your impression as well? And then we'll close
1: if we look at the way that uh, the the Paris Agreement uh, came about, uh, is that uh, the the Paris Agreement took place uh, six years after the failed Copenhagen Agreement. Uh, Initially, it was intended to have a global new climate change agreement in Copenhagen in 2009. That's failed because it was a top-down approach where uh, governments would get together and say, look, you need to do this, you need to do that. And governments, especially from the developing world, said, look, we, we are not in agreement with such an approach. So what has happened over the last uh, the last years is that and that countries have started to do their homework, and they say, like, what is it that we need, what is it that we want to do in order to, to move forward? And, and I think that that's is the strength of the Paris Agreement because it's uh, the the fact that people actually came up with an agreement which was more ambitious than two degrees is is in part because uh, countries from the Pacific and uh, and other developing countries said, like, if we want to continue to exist, we need to have an ambitious agreement. Mm -hmm. And since countries have started to do their homework and, let's say, putting in uh, let's say or uh, pulling in this this argument that I said before that it is no longer an environmental agenda but it becomes a, an agenda of economic competitiveness that I think that that uh, that that will guarantee the survival of, of of the paris agreement, and at the same time i think it it is also i think that the the, the fact that it is becoming uh, a topic of economic competitiveness that that the U.S. will not. Uh, I think that if the U.S. would pull out, it would be against the advice of uh, many of the subnational's uh, of many of the states. It would be against the advice of the majority of the of, of, of the business sector in 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 the U.S. Um, and I think that uh, that uh, in a way that uh, I think that the whole movement. Uh, is, is so strong now that, that I think that we have reached uh, the, the, the point of no return like if you look at it in terms of energy uh, generation and I know that Trump is talking about putting the coal miners back to work but the reality is that, uh, that let's say uh, a large majority of new uh, energy uh, generating capacity across the world in 2016 was renewable that the idea that uh, that we are going to expand and that we would have a fossil fuel uh, based economy in in the future i think that this is not going to happen and that is also like even the coal uh, producers in the us said that that uh, that, that that trump is not realistic uh, that say at certain point, like uh, the, the the pricing does not work. Like if if renewable energy is cheaper, then why would you go for for dirty coal? So so and that is I think like uh, that we see in mobility as well is that we are reaching a point that uh, in in the next years hmm, that uh, that electric mobility is actually going to be cheaper than, uh, than, than 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 traditional cars. So so and once that is the case, then there's no real reason uh, to 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 stick to, uh, to to gasoline cars or to to diesel cars. Eh? So so all in all, uh, we feel that that we are uh, working on a topic that, uh, that 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 things are moving, and and so so we, and we think that. What we have seen, and we have been continuously surprised over the last nine years since we were established in 2009, that things keep going faster, and that that is, uh, let's say, it, it's it's a very exciting uh, prospect for us, and we are happy to to, to be part of this uh, this moment of change.
0: We'll end it there. Uh, that's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Corny so much for being on the show today. It's such an interesting discussion. Please do us a favor before you go. Head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking uh, and keeping the show visible so that other people can discover it and also benefit from it. Thanks so much for helping out. If you're looking for more insight and analysis on Future Fuels issues, sign up for my free weekly newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com.